Good morning, New Life Church. It's wonderful to be with you this morning and to worship together with you and see some of you who are visiting from out of town. I love the summer. I love the extra hour of sleep Sunday mornings. Amen? And uh, move that there. And uh, see some of you that we only see this time of year, so welcome here. Now, as, as the person who does most of the preaching around here, I often share some, some little insights or details about my life, and so you get to know me little by little. But I don't know that I've ever shared with you uh, the fact that beyond being a pastor and a husband and a father, I am the founder and president of the Treasure Hunter Adventure Club. A few years ago, I founded this organization, kind of an exclusive membership. It consists of uh, my nieces and nephews. And so I'm kind of a big deal to a, a very small group of 7 to 12-year-olds. But uh, we have this little thing called the Treasure Hunter Adventure Club. Whenever we get together, uh, this is on Erica's side of the family, uh, I, I normally, as a founder and president, uh, organize uh, some outings. Uh, we have incredible adventures. We canoe. Um, sometimes we'll, we'll go on walks. And we'll search for like treasures, like amazing artifacts, like acorns and stuff like that. And uh, we have a lot of fun. But, but something we do in, in this club is we all have nicknames. So when you're in the club doing a club outing, you have to go by your nickname. And so everyone's got a name, okay? And everyone uh, has a name that was given to them because it represented some attribute about them, some characteristic or maybe some event in their life. And so in our club, um, we've got Snakey. We've got Stomper, we've got Hops, there's Gung Ho, there's Skunky Beard. Um, <laughs> no, that's not me. <laughs> uh, who else do we have? Well, Jack Pine, and there's a few others there. I'm probably embarrassing my children, big time here. Uh, and I'm Blazer. I'm Blazer because I am founder and president. I don't know if I mentioned that. And, um, and so I, I'm the one that kind of has blazed the trail. And when we go hiking, I like to be out in front blazing the trail. And if you've ever seen Eric and I walking together, I use together as a loose term, you'll probably see me 20 feet ahead. And she's like, can we just walk together? Why are you up there? So, um, yeah, my name in the club is is Blazer, and most of us, we probably carry nicknames that were given to us or maybe that we gave ourselves at some point. Do you have a nickname? Do you have a nickname? Like, if it, unless it's really inappropriate. Okay, don't share that, but, but if you've got, like, shout out a nickname you got. Anyone? Be brave. Trouble? Yes, I see where that came from. Any other nicknames? Garth? Okay, that just seems like a name. <laughs> Garth. But not your name. Okay. <laughs> no, you're all too shy. Uh, so, I mean, often it will be somebody else that gives us a nickname, and sometimes it's a little humiliating. Uh, it, it was not long ago that somebody from the distant past of a staff member here lit out a name by accident. It was embarrassing. And I'm not going to tell you which staff member it is and what the name was, uh, and, but if you see me after the service with $20, I will be happy <laughs> to give you some insight. It was awesome. So sometimes we're given nicknames, sometimes we give ourselves names, and so I know tomorrow morning when some of those kids arrive here for VBS, I'm going to have a couple little boys that are going to be like, hey, Mr. Wonderful, when they talk to me because that's my name. It's my nickname, and I gave it to myself. They didn't give it to me. I am Mr. Wonderful. So even sometimes around town, I'll see a kid from the community, hey, it's Mr. Wonderful, and I know that kid came to VBS. And um, yeah, so normally when we give ourselves names, we kind of give ourselves names we can be proud of. Uh, you know, in, in the scriptures, God has given himself names, uh, a variety of names. And if you've been tracking with our summer series here, what we're doing is one by one, we're just looking at the names, some of the names, or there's many more than we can deal with through the summer, but some of the names that God has given to himself, and they're great names. We've already looked at God as Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides. God is Jehovah Rapha, healer. God as Jehovah Ra, shepherd. 
And there's many more awesome names God gives Himself. We're going to look at a different name this morning. Yesterday, Annika asked me what name I was preaching on, and I said, uh, I'm preaching on God as jealous. And she gave me this funny look. That's in the Bible? Yeah. Yeah, in the Bible, God gave Himself the name jealous. Did you know that? I mean, we just heard that in Exodus chapter 34, verse 14. Do not worship any other God. For the Lord, this is God talking, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Now, I don't know if you've ever read that or if you're just hearing that and that kind of surprises you because I don't know that I've ever used the word jealous in my whole life other than in a negative context. It's always a bad thing to be jealous. And so we see in the scriptures often when we're, we're given a list of things not to be, right, sins of the flesh, we always see jealousy in there, right? Romans chapter 13, verse 13 is an example of this. Paul will say in Romans 13, 13, let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ, right? It's not a good thing to be jealous, right? What is it that means to be jealous? It means to have a, a fierce desire, for that which is possessed by another. And, and to have jealousy is, is a really corrosive thing. We're called not to be jealous because right? it's corrosive to our relationships. You can't love somebody properly if you are jealous of that person, right? You will find little ways to try to knock them down a peg or stir a little trouble or talk around their back, create a little bit of drama, and that often that comes from a spirit of jealousy because they have something you deeply desire but do not have. It's not a good thing to be jealous, and yet God's name is jealous. Now, think of that. It doesn't just say that God is jealous. God's name is jealous. He's making a very firm statement. What he's saying is, I don't just experience jealousy. I embody jealousy as God. In the same way when God would say God, uh, we've seen in the New Testament, God is love. That, that's deeper than just God loves. For to say God is love, I love, Rusty loves, but I don't always love. I, you can't say Rusty is love. I don't embody love. God is love. He embodies. God is jealous. His name. He embodies jealousy. What we're going to find out this morning is that that may surprise us because we maybe always have negative connotations with jealousy, but we're going to see that jealousy, while, while often is wrong, sometimes jealousy is right. We're going to explore what it means for God to be jealous and what that means for us. And as we look at this passage, um, we're going to understand what it means that his name is jealous. And so to understand that, we have to look at the context of what's happening in Exodus chapter 34. So, I mean, I'd say keep that open on your, on your lap uh, because we're going to be referencing these words here throughout the message. So God comes to Moses on Mount Sinai, right? They have left Egypt. God has delivered them through the Red Sea. They're on their way to the promised land. He brings them to this mountain where he's going to meet Moses and he's going to make a covenant, he says. In verse 10, I am making a covenant with you. Okay, so God is making a covenant. What is a covenant? A covenant is a solemn promise from God to give a benefit or a blessing to the people of his covenant if they keep the terms of the covenant. So every covenant has three things. It has a blessing or a benefit, promise. It has the terms of the covenant, covenant that the recipient has to keep, and it has a warning of what happens if you don't keep those terms. Every covenant that has those three things. And so God here is making a covenant with his people Israel, this nation of people that comes from Abraham, and what are the terms of this covenant? Well, it's pretty clear when you look a few verses later that the, this, the, the terms of the covenant really are the Ten Commandments. If you look at uh, verse 27, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write down these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So Moses was there with the Lord on the mountain 40 days, 40 nights, without eating or drinking water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So there it is. In this case, the terms of the covenant are these Ten Commandments. 
Now, we can make a mistake at this point. You're, you're maybe familiar with the Ten Commandments generally. And, and if you can't list them all, what you do know is it's a list of rules, things that you are to do or to not to do. And it would be really easy at this point to kind of mistake what this covenant is all about and to think that here in the Old Testament when God is making a covenant with his people Israel, this is a covenant based on works. We know that the covenant that God makes with us through Jesus is different. It's a covenant based on God's mercy and grace expressed in Jesus Christ, but this is different. This is, this is a covenant based on works. So if God's people do this, then God will do that. But that would be to mistake what this is all about here. The picture we often have is that God is the employer. We are the employees that serve Him. The terms, these Ten Commandments, are our job description. And the blessings or the benefits we get from God or the things we earn are our wages if we do our work. That's often what we think of when we, when we think of what God has done here with His people in the Old Testament, but that's not what is happening here. We're going to see this is not a covenant built on work, but it's a covenant of God's mercy because before He ever lays out any terms of this covenant, He reveals who He is. And He says this in verse 6 and 7, the first words to Moses, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Before he's even given the terms of the covenant, he says, I am a Lord who is abounding in love, steadfastly faithful, I am merciful, I forgive rebellion and sin. And yet, in the next breath, he says, and yet I don't leave the guilty unpunished. So it's kind of like, well, which is it? Do you forgive or do you punish the guilty? And I think what we're supposed to understand here is God forgives in this, this covenant. This is a covenant of God's mercy and forgiveness that he will give mercy and forgiveness to all who come to seek it. To all who come and repent of their sins, God is a God who will forgive, who will show mercy when it is sought. But to those who do not seek His mercy, who are unrepentant, He says, they are found guilty. He does not clean their sin. And so, here at the very beginning, we have to understand this is a covenant based on the merciful willingness of God to forgive repentant sinners. That's what this is. It's not a, it's not a covenant of works. We do this for God, then He'll give us that. He's a God of mercy, forgiving sin. This is a covenant based on the merciful willingness of God to forgive repentant sinners. And we know that because this isn't the first time God has done this. If you go back a few chapters, you'll see that He already gave the Ten Commandments up on the mountain to Moses. And when He brought them down, what did He find? He found that the people down below had already melted down all the gold jewelry and made a golden calf and were worshiping an idol, breaking the very first words of the terms of the covenant. This has already happened, and yet God is willing to do it again. He's already displayed His mercy, His desire to forgive and restore. So we already see His mercy displayed here. And we know that this covenant He is making is one of, not of works, but one based on his merciful willingness to forgive sinners because the basic requirement of this covenant, the basic terms, are not really work. It's worship. What God is looking for from His people, from His covenant people, is worship. Verses 11 through 13, He says, Obey what I command you today. I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites. And so He's leading them into the promised land He's going to give them. And the people that are there, God is going to push out. I'm going to drive out the Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you are going, or they will be a snare among you. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and cut down their asher poles. Wow, that's kind of serious stuff, especially in 2022. How do we make sense of that? And then he goes on to say, do not worship any other god for the Lord 
whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. He says, when you get into the land, I'm going to drive out the people, right? And I want you to smash down any, any remaining idols or ashrapals, the places where they would offer worship to other gods. I want you to rid the land of those things. Why? Because I desire your worship. What is God jealous for? God is jealous for worship. What were, the, what were the very first words of the terms of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, right? You shall have no other God before me. You shall worship me alone. And all the other nine commandments are just outward manifestations of worship. This is what it looks like to worship God. What is God jealous for? God is jealous for your worship. More than anything else, God desires that you would worship Him. What is worship? We can kind of like limit that, can't we? Just Well, it's what we're doing right now. We come here, we sing songs, we listen to the Bible, and then Monday we do something else, but on Sunday we worship. Well, that's not worship. Worship is not, at its essence, an activity that you do at one point or another. Worship is a posture of the heart. It is an orientation in relationship with another thing or, or another person. Worship of God is, is, in its essence, it's to see and express God's superior worth. That he is more worthy than anything else or anyone else. And to believe that and to feel that and to express that in all that we do. That is worship. It is to see the superior worth of God. To desire him above all else. Worship is to be, have a single-hearted devotion. It's to give all of yourself to God. Right? This is what Paul would say in Romans chapter 12, right? Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship, to offer your bodies. That is, to offer your whole self, your whole being to God in devotion to Him, to love Him and to serve Him, to have complete allegiance to him that everything else in life at the end of the day must submit itself to. Worship is single-hearted devotion to God. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 to 4. This is Paul speaking to the church in Corinth. He says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealous, with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. You know, I was reading that this week. What does it mean that he is jealous for them? Paul says, I, I'm jealous for you. I share the jealousy of God for you that you might worship him. That's what it means. Sincere devotion to Christ. I think what he's saying is, my heart burns that you might have all of God and that God might have all of you. I want that for you and I want that for God. And as I read that, I thought, you know what? That kind of put, for, for me, it almost put words to like a feeling I feel. And I think any of us as pastors, when we see you, when we minister to you, when we call you, when we email you, like, what is that coming from? This, this burden we feel for you like, that's it. I am, share the jealousy of God. I want you to have all of God. And I want God to have all of you. He says, this is devotion to Christ. This is worship. That's what that, that's what that looks like. But he goes on. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. So this is what Paul does in all of his letters. Right? When, when, he, when he's writing to the church, he's always battling 
these things that are drawing their hearts away from true worship. And, and, and if you look at it, you see it's, it's always in two different directions. The heart is led away from sincere devotion to Jesus in two different ways. And he's always battling one of these two types that draw our hearts away. And I would call the first religion. Paul is always battling religion. And I would define religion as just any system of if I do this for God, God will give me that. And that can be any version of that. It comes back to that, that kind of picture of an employer. If I do good enough work, I will, I will gain this from God. Religion, earning God's favor, is the enemy of worship. Because that sort of way of relating to God through religion, what it does is it just uses God to get what you want. You don't actually want God itself, himself. You just want to use God, manipulate God through what you do to earn from God what it is that you want. Isn't that what all that idol worship is? I'll go, I'll burn some incense, I'll leave that. He'll give me a baby. The rain will come on my crops. I'll be healthy. I'll find a wife. That's religion, and that's the antithesis of worship because religion leads either to pride, right? So now we boast not in God, but we boast in ourselves, maybe what we feel we have done or accomplished, or it leads us into anxiety, feeling like we have not done enough, we cannot do enough, and therefore we are afraid of how God may treat us, but it doesn't lead to true worship. To behold God as the God who is compassionate, who is merciful, My family was away for the weekend. They're back now, but um, while they were away, Erica and the girls, I, I didn't do any dishes. Okay, when the women leave the house, the men don't do dishes at all, like the whole time. And so, she was coming back a little bit earlier. I got a text from her, leaving now. Ooh, now? I looked at the house, okay. And so I, um, you know, I kind of sprung to work, and, and uh, I had the kitchen clean by the time she got home, right? But you, can, you can clean the kitchen in, 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 with very different motives, right? Like, I, I could be like, man, I better clean this kitchen, because if I don't clean this kitchen, and she walks in and sees that, she's going to be angry at me, and then I have to suffer with her wrath, and I don't want to do that. Like, that's one way a guy might clean the kitchen, or it might be, and then, first of all, does that honor your wife? Is that honoring to, to, to serve in that way? Like, there's no honor in that, is there? I better do this or else she's going to do that or withhold that. But if it's, man, I know my wife likes a clean kitchen. And I love my wife. Man, she's done so much for me. Gave birth to those three kids all the time. And everything she does, I want to bless my wife. Even though I don't like doing dishes necessarily. I want to bless my wife and, and so that when she comes home, she's pleased and I can enjoy her pleasure. Does that honor? Isn't that honoring? You can do the exact same thing, but it's why you do it. One is honoring and one isn't honoring. Religion doesn't honor God because it doesn't make much of His love, His mercy, His faithfulness, because anything we get from Him is something that we have earned from Him, which does not honor Him. So Paul's always battling against that orientation, that religious mindset. Worship of God is based on beholding the greatness of his undeserved love, his bottomless mercy, and that becomes the motive for our obedience. Isn't that what Jesus says, John 14? If you love me, you will obey my commands. Obedience, all of that flows out of love. So when, when Paul's talking about, man, there's, there's these false gospels that are vying for your heart to lead you away from sincere devotion to Christ, that's one he's battling. He's battling religion. And then on the other side of that, there's probably a better word for this, but I just use the word rejection. And I, I don't mean by rejection like, God, I don't believe in you. I don't believe there's a God. I don't have any care for God. I mean, not treating God as God. Wanting God, but wanting to have God in your life on His terms, on, 
on your terms and not his terms. You see, this was, this was the problem in this story. The first time God gave them the Ten Commandments, Moses comes down. He sees the people worshiping this golden calf. Now, maybe you've read that story and you've thought this golden calf represents a different God. We've abandoned Yahweh. He ain't doing it for us. Now we're serving that God. That's not what they were doing. If you read the story, they call the calf they have made Yahweh. We have now made an image of God. And God was very unhappy with that. Not because they were saying, we don't believe in you anymore. Now we believe in that God. It's like, we believe in you, but we're going we're gonna to worship you on our terms. Because w- w- when, you make a, when you make an idol, it's a way of saying, I have God now, and I can bring God with me. I can bring God before battle, and he has to fight my battles. It's like having a genie in the bottle. The genie's trapped in the bottle, and, and he's there to serve you, and you bring him wherever you want to go. That's what's happening in that story. It's they were, they were wanting to, you know, they believed in God. They were wanting to serve God, but they were wanting to do it on their terms and not God's terms. Paul, often in his writing, he combats this mentality in the church that says something like, if God is merciful, if God forgives, then it doesn't really matter what I do. Right? Isn't that the opposite problem of religion? Religion is, um, I better do this or God won't do that. This is like, well, God's already done this, so it doesn't really matter what I do. He, isn't, isn't He actually merciful and loving and compassionate? doesn't matter. I can sin, whatever. It's, it's having a, it, it's wanting God, but wanting God on, not on His terms, but on our terms. It's really being half-hearted. And I think we battle this in the church, Christians, I think our hearts battle this, being half-hearted, wanting God, but wanting God on our terms, in our measure, in moderation. And that takes all sorts of different forms. It might be that some people, they want their own private relationship with God, but they don't want to be responsible to or responsible for other people, the people of God. You know, some people, they maybe want forgiveness from God, but they, they don't want to the struggle to follow God and live for Him. Some people, they just want to pick and choose which parts of the Bible that they'll accept, which things they will obey. Some people, they want to create their own version of God, kind of make God in their own image, and that was the problem with the golden calf. They were wanting to make God in their own image. Today, we we want to think of God as as loving but not as holy, maybe as merciful but not as judge who demands our total um, undivided allegiance. And so I think we battle our hearts being led into moderation, being half-hearted. And that is the antithesis of worship because what is worship? It's, 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 It's ascribing to God ultimate worth. God, we want you more than we want anything else. So that would be like me seeing all these dishes there and going, my wife is a wonderful wife. She is so forgiven. She's forgiven me so many times. She'll forgive me again. I know she's not going to leave me. I mean, some women would, but not my, not, not, not my woman. And she just bears up under so much. She's awesome. I'm not going to clean the dishes. She'll forgive me. Does that, does that honor my wife? It, may, it, may be, it maybe makes much of their mercy, but does it actually honor them? Of course not. That's the antithesis of honor, antithesis of worship. So Paul says that this devotion that we are to give God, it's actually like a marriage relationship. Isn't that what he said? Like, I wanted to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. We as the church are the bride of Christ. Anytime it refers to the jealousy of God in the Bible, and actually when I was researching this, it's a lot. I'd never noticed it before. It talks about the jealousy of God for his people, for their hearts, for their devotion all the time. And every time it does, it talks about it in the context of a picture of marriage. The covenant between a husband and a wife. 
God is jealous for us the way that we are jealous for one another in the context of marriage, which is a righteous jealousy. So I did a wedding last week. They got married again. First time didn't take. <laughs> Bethany and Nathan. No, they had, their, they had their little COVID five-person wedding, and then they had their big celebration last weekend, so we did the vows again, and I said something like, Nathan, do you take Bethany to be your wedded wife, to have and to hold, blah, 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 richer or poor, blah, 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 sickness, health, right? Forsaking all others, be faithful to her and to her alone. If so, say, I do. And you said, I do. And then you said the same thing. Forsaking all others, being faithful to him and to him alone. I do. That, that's the vow of marriage. It's, it's a giving of one's whole heart to the other, forsaking all other things that would vie for the affection, the attention, devotion of our hearts. And you know what? In marriage, it would be right for you to be jealous of your, of your spouse's affection. It would be right. I mean, if, 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 if your spouse is fooling around, giving what belongs to you to somebody else, you would be right to be jealous, to have a fierce desire for that which should be yours but which is possessed by another or given to another. That's a right type of jealousy. It would be right to oppose anything that would draw your, your spouse's heart away from you. And this is the picture of God's jealousy. It's, 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 it's a picture of marital devotion, marital of faithfulness. God wants the heart of His beloved. And He will not settle with not having all the heart of His beloved. He is jealous for the affection and the worship of His beloved. And so this is God saying in these words, He's saying don't make dates with other men. Essentially, don't, don't, put, don't keep pictures of your old boyfriends up on the dresser. I want your whole heart. Yeah, women, you shouldn't do that. And like, unfriend them on Facebook too, all right? And then put find, friend finder on your phone so your wife always knows where you are, all right? Build trust. That's a different message. <laughs> but when God says that he's jealous for worship, what he says is, I want your undivided heart, your full devotion. I want you to see that I am that thing of greatest worth and I want you to cherish me. God is jealous for worship. And in the last few minutes here, Why? Why is God jealous for our single-hearted devotion to Him above all else? Well, I think there's three reasons. The first reason is this. God is jealous for the sake of His own glory. He's jealous for our devotion because He is worthy of it. He is, it is only right that He have our whole hearts, that He have our worship. Because he's like, a, he, he's like a king who found this peasant girl in some village who had no hope, who had no future, who was living in poverty, with all these unmet needs, and he loved that one, and he took her for himself, and they got married, and he brought her into the palace, and he meets her every need and has given her hope and a future and cherishes her. That's what God has done for us, and we see that most fully in, in how he's done that for us in the cross, right? That God loved us so much that He gave His Son. Jesus left all His heavenly glory from all eternity past and He comes down and He takes the form of a servant and He endures all He has to endure which culminates in the cross and He lays down everything He has because God loves you. And God wants you to know Him and all the benefits there are in knowing Him and the great life that He has for you, to be welcomed into the palace to experience that fullness of life. He is the one who created you. He's redeemed you through Jesus Christ. He sustains you each and every day by His Spirit. He is worthy of our worship. I remember something my dad said, maybe when I was newly married, might even been before I was married, but I've never forgotten it. He said, son, he said, never compare your wife to another woman who hasn't paid the price to bear your children. Have I never forgotten that? Never 
compare your wife to another woman who hasn't paid the price in their body to like make and deliver, which I'm told is a challenging process. (laughs) And then nourish and feed. What my dad was saying, and my dad, I'm blessed to have a good role model there. He's saying, you know, son, you know, in the future there's going to be, yeah, there's going to be stretch marks. There's going to be maybe some saggy skin. All of those things are signs. Understand that those are signs of love. What has been done for you. God is worthy of our worship. So in other words, when our hearts and when our eyes might wander to other things, other idols, other things that would vie for our affection, we need to remember all that He has done and all that He does for us. And if we would be mindful of that, we would worship Him, for He is worthy. So that's the first reason God is jealous of our worship, because He's jealous for the sake of His own glory. He's worthy of it. There's a second reason, though. God is jealous for the sake of our good. Remember back there in Exodus 34, it says, you know, you're going to go to the land and I'm going to push them out because those people and their gods and their altars, they will be a snare to you. What is a snare? A snare is a trap. It's going to look good. There's going to be a nice little tasty morsel in there and you're going to walk into there and snap. There's, there's pits, there's traps, and I want to spare you from those things. God is not jealous. He doesn't want our whole heart or single-minded devotion because he's insecure or because he has an inferiority complex. He's worried we're going to find another God who looks better and has abs and has more money, who can provide better, who's more charismatic, and, he's, and, and, and he doesn't want you know, his wife to stumble across someone better. God is not jealous because he's insecure and he thinks there might be something or someone better. He's jealous of our worship because he knows that fullness of life is found only in him and in nothing and no one else. And he wants you to experience the fullness of life. And so he is jealous for your worship. He's jealous for your heart. This is what David said in Psalm 106. We can have that up there. Yeah, at Horeb. So, so this, is, uh, this is this instance now. At Horeb, that's Mount Sinai, another word for Sinai. They made a calf and worshipped an idol cast from metal. They exchanged their glorious God for an image. I like that statement. Think of that. They... they they exchange their glorious God for an image of a bull which eats grass. They forgot the God who saved them, who had done great things for them in Egypt, miracle in the lands of Ham and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. In other words, there's this God that had already delivered them through the Red Sea. Even before he gives any of the commands, the Ten Commandments, he's already delivered them. Deliverance isn't based on doing these things. He delivers so that we might do. This great God has already overcome Pharaoh and the army and miraculously differed, you know, led them through the Red Sea and now they want to exchange the glory of God for an image of a bull who eats grass. In other words, that thing could never even come close to uh, doing for them what the gl- their glorious God has and can and will do for them in the future. It's a terrible trade. They have turned from the greater thing to pursue the lesser thing. And God wants us to have the greater thing. As he would say in Jeremiah chapter 22, you've sinned twice against me. First of all, you've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and you've dug for yourself broken cisterns that cannot hold water. And and, and our hearts were tempted in all sorts of ways to try to, to find in other ways The fullness of life that can only be found in God, whether that's through possessions or through success in business or through the way we look 
broken cisterns when God is a spring of living water who meets each and every one of our needs. God alone makes us truly secure. Your possessions will fail you. God alone makes us truly loved and whole. God alone gives us peace in all circumstances. You cannot find that anywhere else to have a peace and a comfort that no circumstance, no hardship in life can take from you because you belong to this glorious God who cares for you, who is guiding you to this glorious end, who has this great inheritance for you, who are a part of His covenant people. He calls us to Himself because He wants to give us the best. And I remember in Luke chapter 12, there's this guy that comes to Jesus. My brother, he hasn't given me my share of the inheritance. He's keeping it all for himself. Tell him to give me my share. And Jesus says, brother, life is not found in the abundance of riches. Don't put your hope there. Don't put your heart there. It's an empty cistern. Life is not found in the abundance of riches. It is found nowhere else but in God. Worship Him alone for your own good. So Jesus is jealous, or God is jealous for the sake of our good. And lastly, thirdly, God is jealous for the sake of others' good. You know, when it talks about God pushing out all these people of the land, and then I want you to go and I want you to smash, you know, their altars and cut down their Asherah poles. These are all objects of worship to other gods. God, what we need to understand is God didn't push out the other nations because He didn't care about them, but because He did care about them. He didn't say, I don't want you to mingle with those people and intermarry with those people because He didn't care about those people. I love you, but I don't love them. I chose you, but uh, keep your distance. God didn't push out the other nations because He didn't care for them, but precisely because He did. See, back when He entered into covenant with Abraham and said, Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation from you. I'm going to bless you. And all the peoples of the earth are going to be blessed through you. All the peoples of the earth are going to be blessed through you. Through your people, I will show all the peoples of the earth the glory of God, the better thing the one who truly gives life, they will see it through you and your people. And that's why he didn't want them to mix. It's so that they wouldn't lose their light because they were called to be a light to the nations, a light to the world. Don't give that up. This is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13. Verses 13 to 16. Words you probably know well. He says to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. If the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the salt of the earth. Don't lose your distinctiveness. Why? Because you are a preservative for others. Others need you to be salty. Don't lose your difference. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Be the light of the world. It's a dark world. Be the light. Don't hide your light. Your light needs to shine so that other people will see the light of the glory of God. And come to him too. I want all the nations to come to me. That's why. That's why I call you to not compromise and to worship me alone. That's why I'm pushing out these other peoples so that you have a place to shine and to show. So shine. Do not hide. You know, Christians, we face pressure. I don't know if you feel this. We face pressure to hide. We face pressure to compromise. We face pressure to go private and not be public. 
to be of this world. What we need to know is that the people around you, whether they know it or not in the moment, they need you to be different. They need us to be different. They need us to be devoted to God so that maybe they too will see the superior worth of God and they will worship Him too. They will become a part of the bride of Christ. And so even those first disciples, John and Peter, right? Those, those Jewish leaders, hey, would you stop talking about Jesus? Okay, do it in the house. Don't do it outside or else. And what do they say? Acts chapter 4, verse 12. There is no other name given under heaven by which men can be saved. We cannot help but speaking. We cannot help but sharing because there is no other way to experience life with God apart from Jesus Christ. People need our light. People need our, our different, whether they know it or not. And Peter will say in 1 Peter 2, he says, you know, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they will glorify God on the day he visits. Though they accuse you of doing wrong, live such good lives among the world that though they accuse you of doing wrong, well, that's interesting. Like your good is going to be called bad. You know that, Christian? There's going to be times where your good is going to be called bad. And maybe ever more so, moving forward, and I mean, it might even be true to say, if you're not accused of wrongdoing, then you're probably doing something wrong. So don't, don't hide your light. Don't compromise. Don't have a divided heart. Others need to see your devotion so that they too might worship God and see His worth. So God is jealous for the sake of others' good. For all of those reasons, God is jealous for our worship. And you know, I'm just so glad that God is a jealous God. As I've thought about this, I'm so glad that God's a sort of God where He's not like, yeah, if you want to go, if you want to go do that, if you want to go see that, print, whatever. I'm glad that God is jealous for my affection he demands my devotion, that He will not share me with anyone else or anything else, that He won't just settle for just a part of me, but that He deeply desires all of me so that I can have all of Him. You know, church, there's that saying, do everything in moderation, and that's true. There's a lot of things you should do in moderation. If you're going to drink, drink in moderation. You know? If you're going to eat, eat in moderation. If you can exercise, it's good for you. Just exercise in moderation. But don't, don't love your spouse in moderation. You know, love your spouse with your whole heart. Don't love God in moderation. Love God with all that you are. Isn't that what Jesus says? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And so as we bring this to a close here, this is a time just to kind of search for our hearts and to hear from God and just to ask ourselves, is my life a life of worship? Is my heart divided in any way? Is there any way in which I'm trying to be popular with my classmates instead of popular with God? Popular with the coworkers instead of popular with God? Popular with friends instead of popular with God? Is there any way in which I'm, I'm this way this day with this group of people, but I'm that way on that day with that group of people? Is there any way that God doesn't have all of me? Is there an altar in your life this morning, church, that, that God is bringing to your mind that you need to smash? Is there something that is vying for God's place in your heart? something that you need to forsake so that God can have all of you? Think on that. It may be this morning that God has just, He's convicted you. Maybe there's some area of your life where He's saying, you're, you're, giving, you're giving your heart to something or someone else there. 
You're trying to find in something else what you're supposed to find in me. Or maybe you're here this morning and you just feel like, man, if you're honest with yourself, your, your love for God just feels cool. You say, I just don't feel like my heart is just fully devoted to God. And I just want to give you an opportunity this morning just to bend your knee to Him. I mean, bend the knee of your heart to Him and say, God, you, I give you all of me again, all of my devotion, all of my allegiance. I forsake this over here for your sake, God. And sometimes I find when we bend the knee of our heart, sometimes it helps like to actually bend my physical knee as a way to express kind of, I am surrendering myself again to God. This is the proper posture to have. And so I want to do something a little bit different here as the team comes and they're going to close us with this final song. If you just feel this morning like God is laying on your heart that you need to surrender yourself or some part of yourself to Him again this morning, as, as we lead this final song, you could do it right where you are. You could bend your knee there, but I would invite you, if, if God would just move in your heart, maybe you just want to come and just stand at the front. Maybe you want to come down here, and maybe you just want to kneel down here as a way of saying, God, I give you all of me. I forsake anything else for your sake, that I have all of you. So I just invite you, if God lays it on your heart, to be brave and to come do that as, as, as an act of, of surrender, as an act of commitment to Him. And, um, and after the song, then I will just kind of pray over all of us as we go. So um, why don't you stand, church, and uh, we will pray, and then we'll worship God together. And if you want, you can come to the front. Lord, we thank you that you reminded us this morning that you are the Lord who is compassionate, who is steadfast in love and faithfulness, who is merciful. Lord, you are that way to us, not because of anything we've done. Lord, that is undeserved, your mercy. We could never deserve it, but it is a love and a grace that you freely give to all who receive that. And we just thank you, God, that you are love, that you are mercy, that you are faithful, that you are worthy of all that we are, and all that we have. We thank you. In Jesus' name.